Well, hello there. It's awesome to be with you again. I'm excited about tonight's Bible study and tonight's lesson. Thank you for joining me, for those of you that, that will join in, and, and for those of you that will watch this at a later time. Welcome. I'm so excited to be doing this study with you, and I just praise God that, that he's given me a gift, and I'm able to do my best to share that, and that's my intention. And I certainly want to do it in a way that honors him. So as always, I'd like to begin again with prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that is devoted to this Bible study. And Lord, I pray that you will reveal yourself to us, your people, that you will speak. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me and that you will feed those that might listen to this lesson from your living word. And so, Father, I pray that you will help me. I ask for the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God. And I offer myself just as your servant. Father, I pray that you will speak through me, Lord, and that, that these will be words of life that will build up your people, edify them, and help them to know you more. Because that's what this study is all about. And that's what your desire is. You want relationship with us. So help me, Lord, to be used of you to help people to be drawn in to a real and vibrant relationship with you, Lord. It's my desire for myself and for all those that I can bring in and that would, that would hear me as well. And so, God, I give you this time. I give you myself, and I praise you, and I thank you, Lord. I ask that you be honored and glorified through it all. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, welcome, and thank you again for joining me. And we are in Lesson 4 of Run Kitty Run, our Bible study about the names of God. And just as brief review, you see the tree that we have posted that one of my um, classmates um, drew for me and, and colored in and, and made a beautiful drawing for me for this study. And so I want you to understand that title. It comes from that foundational scripture in Proverbs 18.10, where it says the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run up into it and are safe. And so we're discussing this in, in light of the, the name of the Lord being like that strong tree that a kitty cat can run into and be inaccessibly high and too high for capture when being chased by another animal. We're talking about the names of God and we saw how the name is really referencing the character and the very essence, the deepest part of who that person is and what makes them who they are. And so we last week looked at yud Hey vav Hey, the Hebrew tetragrammaton. Yahweh is how we typically will pronounce it. The Jews do not pronounce it out of respect. They typically will say either Hashem or Adonai in reverence to the holiest of all names but it is his covenant name that he has revealed himself to. And it forms a foundation and a basis like the trunk of the tree for those branches and for the other things that we will learn as we go through this study. Tonight, I'd like to go into a discussion on El or Elohim. In some places, it shows up as El. In other places, it shows up as Elohim. It's the same same name, and where it's usually translated in our Bibles as God. And I want to go there tonight and talk about that because it is also foundational for us to understand. 
and it's also linked and tied with other attributes and other names of God, such as El Shaddai, or El Elyon, or El Roy. So we need to understand what is El, what is Elohim, what is this name of God? It's found all throughout the scriptures, and it's typically translated in our Bibles as the word God. It's in Middle Eastern usage, it can even be in the in the ancient usage at least, referred to referring to false gods as well or idols that they would worship. But we Christians know and serve the one true God, the one who lives and who acts and who answers prayer. But who is he? El, Elohim, this Hebrew word. Let's dig into it and see what we can find out. First of all, it's masculine plural. It refers to the supreme God, the supreme deity or the divine. It's first found early in the scriptures. We don't have to go very far. Welcome to you. As a matter of fact, to find El or Elohim in the scriptures, we don't have to go very far at all. It's the fourth word in the English Bible, and it's found in Genesis 1.1, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, Notice when the Bible starts out with this, it just begins with this understanding. And it says this, in the beginning, God. Notice there's no explanation, there's no justification, and there's no question about God and about God's existence and about God as a being. He is the supreme being. It proves his supremacy. It proves his eternal nature and existence. In other words, he was already there and acted at the very beginning of everything else that that he wanted us to know about. He created also. He's an active God. He created. He shaped, formed, made, or fashioned. So not only is he alive, but he's also active. He's doing things. He's making things. He's creating. It's interesting that creativity is one of those attributes that we share with God. It came from him, and it's part of who he is. You know, even looking around at nature, the things that God has made, is a beautiful understanding of the the diversity and and the, the variations Every flower is different. Every snowflake is not the same. And every person is intricately and wonderfully fashioned by God. Every life is beautiful and precious. I just recently went to see the movie Unplanned that has now come out, and I encourage you to go and see it if you haven't already. And it shows in a beautiful detail in one portion of that film God's handiwork inside of a mother's womb, in the place that should be the safest place on the planet for a little tiny baby, in the place that where it should be protected and not destroyed. In Psalm 139, verses 13 through 14, it talks about how we're covered 
by the Lord, even inside the womb. We are fenced in for protection. In other words, the mother's womb was designed by God to be the safest place for the most innocent of all beings. May God have mercy on our land and restore the belief in the sanctity of human life in our day and in our land. Pray for our nation and pray that God will accomplish these things in these days. So the very first thing that we're introduced to when we, when we meet Elohim, translated there in Genesis 1-1 as God, is that he exists, he acts, he creates. Not only does he do those things, but he also speaks rhema living words that then create and bring things to life. They bring things into existence. He speaks with authority. He's not just a babbler. He's not just rambling on. He speaks with one who, as one who can do and will do exactly what he says. It will come to pass. It really happens. Solomon picked up on this point when he dedicated the temple because he, he noted in his prayer of how God was the one who is now fulfilling with his hand, actively doing what he had promised to his father, David. So we see God in Genesis 1 as a doer. We see him also as a finisher. He didn't make half of a lion. He didn't make half of a tree. He finishes what he starts. He's a finisher. We also see there that he's intelligent. He resolves and he designs. So the first thing we see about Elohim or El is that he is the creator God. And all of this we learn from the first few verses of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. We also note that El or Elohim, it's mostly used through scriptures, used thousands of times in the scripture, but most every time it's speaking of the supreme one true God. So this word is accurately translated God in the scriptures. He's one who desires to walk with us, one who desires to teach us, and one who desires to work with us. Everything we do for the kingdom of God, we are partnering, we are co-laboring. He gives us gifts, and then he, we work with him to bring those gifts out. Just like I'm trying to do now, I study and I, I do my best to teach from the word of God and give the insights that he gives to me and share them with you and with, with others to the best of my ability. But I'm only partnering with him. He has to bring the revelation. He has to bring the anointing. And so it's a, it's a partnering together. And whatever ministry you are involved in, that's the way it works. God partners with us. He is with us. And that was even proven when Jesus came and his name was, was going to be called what? Emmanuel, or God with us. So we see El and Elohim translated as God all through the scriptures. And many times in the scriptures, it comes across in its plural form, which is Elohim. So how do we understand this, especially in a day and age with pantheism abounding, where people worship more than one God or many gods or many idols 
they're false gods, but, but they are people that are worshiping. And there are some that believe they can worship several of their so-called gods at one time. Christians are not pantheists. Christians are monotheists. We worship only one God, and our God is one. I want to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This is the Jewish Shema. It's one of the most beloved and revered of all of their Hebrew scriptures, of all of their passages, by religious Jews, Messianic Jews, and Christians alike. And this is what Deuteronomy 6, 4 says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is a beloved anthem that they will even sing. I've heard, I've heard them sing it. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So what does it, it mean, and why then does Elohim, referencing God, show up in plural form? What about this thing that Christians call the Trinity or the triunity of God? Is this real? Oh, yes, it's very real. The very words used here in the Torah prove both his triunity or his trinity and his oneness. The key is understanding when it says the Lord your God, the Lord is, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The word there translated one is ekad. It's the Hebrew word ekad. And it does mean one, but it means a united one. It means united as a united entity and inseparable. God is one God revealed in three persons, each distinctive and yet completely united together as one and inseparable. It speaks of the Trinity or the triunity of God. So to understand that, let's think about this in just light of a couple of examples. First of all, let's take H2O. We know from biology, from chemistry, that these consist, this consists of two molecules of hydrogen and one molecule of oxygen. Yet, as a unit, it forms one thing. However, this one thing that H2O forms exists in three different ways or three different forms. It can be liquid, which is water. It can be in vapor form, which is steam. Or it can be in solid form, which is ice. Either of those examples all consist of one thing, and it is H2O. But it's revealed in three different forms. Another example is us, human beings. We are triune in the sense that we are composed of three different parts to our one being. Now, we are not God, and we will never be divine, ever. But we are existing 
in a three-in-one type of being existing together as one unit. We have a body, we have a soul, and we have a spirit. The body is evident and has its own particular function. The soul and the spirit are the unseen parts, but yet they are definitely felt and evident parts of our deeper being. The soul has been described as the mind, will, and emotions. Maybe our desires, our feelings, our thoughts. The spirit is the very essence or the deepest core of who we are, complete with perhaps our heart, our motives, and our character. The soul and the spirit are very difficult to uh, decipher and determine. And we see that brought out even in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says this, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So even in that passage, we see that to divide between soul and spirit, indicating that there's a fine line between those. They are so, they're, they're an, it's an intricate distinction, but it is a fine line. So we can see from both of these two examples, H2O and the human being that we are, our own personhood, that we can have three functions or properties and yet be intricately woven into one being. And that one thing is totally united, but still revealed in three distinct forms or functions. It's the same thing with God, who is Elohim. R.C. Sproul, I heard him one time, and he described it this way. He said that it's, uh, that, that it's unity in diversity. In other words, what he was saying was he is the one true God, revealed in three persons, yet each and all of those together are totally united as one, and they are inseparable. If you'll remember, Jesus explained it to Philip this way, and he said, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because they are inseparably one, even though they're revealed in three persons. So we serve one God revealed in three persons. So the plurality of God spoken of in Elohim is a united plurality of being that exists within the very deity or what Paul refers to as the Godhead. I'd like to read to you a passage of scripture now from Acts chapter 17. I want to begin first with one verse and then jump over to a few other verses. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 16, it says this, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. So Paul is in Athens here, and it's a very idolatrous city, and that's bothering Paul. It, it disturbs him inside. So go over to verse 22 now, and it says this, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. 
For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. So Paul is saying, you've even got a, a statue over there saying you're worshiping an unknown God. Guess what? I know him. Let me tell you about him. Okay. And so then he proceeds and he says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands, meaning the things that we've made, as though he needed anything, since he's the one. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he is made from one blood, every nation of men, to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devices. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul there is addressing to them this, this God. He is introducing them. He's telling them about God. He's taking the opportunity to teach them about the true God. And he's using their own false image to do that. So he teaches them about this unknown God. And the Bible tells us that some of them do believe, not everybody, but some of them do. So here in this passage, the Godhead is translated as the divine nature in the New King James. Some other translations may say the divine being. He is not made of anything we can see or touch or feel, but he is very real. He gives assurance there of his reality by the fact that he has raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Raising Christ from the dead is the cornerstone of Christianity. The blood of Christ is also important. His death is what washes our sins away. But his resurrection is God's acceptance of that holy sacrifice and the proof that he is now vindicated and has accepted Jesus' blood on our behalf. And it's the promise of our own resurrection later. So he speaks of this, that the reality of God raising Christ from the dead gives proof and assurance to us. He also clarifies about being God's offspring. In other words, speaking of those who believe in him and are saved. We'll never be divine. We won't become gods, but we will be able to share in God's nature. Even in 1 Peter, Peter speaks of that in his um, epistle. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, he says this, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 
So he's talking about us there being able to partake of God's divine nature. We get to share in that. We have we get to have communion and fellowship with him. That's what this whole study is all about. That's what God wants. He wants relationship with us. He wants to fellowship with us. We get to fellowship with the divine one himself, El Elohim. How beautiful is that? Paul in Romans 1.20 explains how God is seen even though he's invisible. He is seen in that passage. Paul is revealing how he's seen just through the things he's made. Even, you know, if you see a watch, you know there had to be a watchmaker. If you see creation, you know there had to be a creator. Welcome to you who are joining in. Thank God. God is the creator God. And just the very fact that we see his creation proves that there was a creator to begin with. There was a designer who gave all of this to us. In Colossians 2, verses 8 through 10, continuing on understanding this Godhead or this Trinity of God, which is actually revealed in Elohim, especially through understanding the word Echad from Deuteronomy 6, 4. In Colossians 2, 8 through 10, it says this, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basics of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, remember a while ago we talked about how even the human body and the human being reveals a three-in-one being in the sense of the fact that we are made with a body, a soul, and a spirit. So here he's just referencing the fact that Jesus came in the in bodily form, revealing to us the fullness of the Godhead, even in his bodily form. And in verse 10, and it says, And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So Paul is giving us, and it's even a relevant word for today, he shows us how worldly philosophies can deceive people, but rather he says that the fullness of the Trinity of the divine God is revealed even through Christ and it dwells in Christ. That's again why Jesus could say to Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. They are united. They are one along with the Holy Spirit, that third person of the Trinity. Each person of the Godhead contains dwelling within himself the fullness of the Godhead, and none is lacking because of it. So Elohim, or what Paul calls the divine being or the Godhead, is that perfect united God who is one in his unity, and yet in his diversity he is still one. He is one God revealed in three persons. And notice also the connection with what we studied last week, Yahweh, with the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4, because Yahweh is this God. They're one and the same. So Yahweh and Elohim form this base of the trunk of our tree. They form the foundation. And it's from that that we which are in covenant with God through Christ's finished work 
can grow and have fellowship with him. We can know him intimately. We can experience him continually. We can draw near to him regularly, and especially in times of need. In the next lesson, I want us to begin to understand the persons of this triune God in a little bit deeper detail. In other words, God the Father, who is the Father to us? God the Son, who is the Son to us? And God the Holy Spirit, who is the Holy Spirit to us? God revealed himself in these three persons, and we need to understand why. And each is relevant, each is important, and each is special. Each is special to us. So it's from this springboard of understanding Yahweh and El and Elohim that in future lessons will spring forward into the various names that God chose to attach to his covenant foundational name of who he is. And you will see these specifically in how they come about and how they become personal to you and relevant to you in various times of need and in various situations. We are like that kitty running up the tree, finding safety in his name. And he wants us to be able to do that. So I pray that this lesson has been a blessing for you and has helped you tonight to understand more about El, about Elohim, our God, who is one, and yet he is one God revealed in three persons. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for those who hear this message. I pray for them. I pray that you will reveal yourself to them in a powerful and in a special way, and you will help them to understand you and you will help them to grow in a relationship with you that is living and vibrant and powerful. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your good word. Now I ask you to bless everyone that will hear this message. In Jesus' name, be with us all. And Father, we bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining me again tonight for this lesson. 